The Lord be with you. Why, thank you. It is good to see you this morning, all of you. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you in our house. Man, I don't know about you, but that just messed me up this morning. Both of the services, man, we had 11 or 12, I think, in the first service and a half a dozen here. And with each one of them, I just found tears rolling down my cheeks. I couldn't help but think about Jesus who said that nobody comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or her. And we're looking at this line of people that are stepping into the waters of baptism. And that's not a human achievement or a human work. That is evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in our midst, that the Spirit of God is at work in the lives of those people. The New Testament says that nobody is able to call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Nobody is able to call God Abba, Father, except by the Holy Spirit. And so here is the Spirit doing this work, continuing to do this work in our midst. Across all New Life congregations this weekend, we're probably going to be baptizing. We'll get the numbers, you know, tomorrow or Tuesday or whenever. But somewhere in the ballpark of 300 people across our city are getting baptized. And I, I've said this to you before, and I'll say it again. I frequently will have people come up to me and they'll go, Pastor, we really need to contend for revival. And I think that we do, but I also think you better look around you. Because when the Lord is adding to our number daily those who are being saved, and when signs and wonders are happening in our midst, and when the Spirit is being poured out, and when the Word is being preached, and when the church is being built up, that's revival by any definition I know of. <laughs> and I think about all that God did in our, in our community last weekend across all New Life congregations. For Good Friday and Easter Sunday, guys, we had 21,000 people come and worship with us. A thousand people in this building alone. Unbelievable. And I, I said this to the first service and I'll say it to you, but I have been at this as a pastor for going on 20 years and maybe I'll still struggle with this until the end of my days, but I'll kind of have these moments where I go, Lord, are we doing enough? Is it going to happen? You know, and there's this temptation to make church a human achievement. And then I show up every Sunday and there's this thing that the Lord is doing that's so far beyond any of our efforts that I can only say with the psalmist, Psalm 118, the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so don't look now, but the Lord is building up his church. Amen. I'm in the book of 1 John this morning. I'm going to start in chapter 1. I don't know if you know this, but we celebrated Easter Sunday last Sunday, but that does not mean that Easter is over. In the church calendar, Easter is actually a season of seven weeks leading up to Pentecost Sunday, which by itself already is telling us something about the nature of resurrection. That resurrection isn't just something that kind of happens and then now we move on with the rest of our Christianity. But resurrection is the working presupposition of the entire New Testament. That this thing has happened and the rest of our life is like this effort, like what these folks did in the waters of baptism this morning. They come up out of the waters and now they will, like us, spend the rest of their lives trying to figure out, well, what the heck they just did this morning, actually. And that is our situation. It's funny, we were reading through the, we've been reading through the Gospels, uh, the Gospel resurrection accounts with our kids uh, this past week. And we read a couple nights ago, we read the end of the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus is raised from the dead. The women are there and they see the empty tomb and all of that. And do you know how Mark actually ends his gospel? Any of you know off the top of your head? 
It says, trembling and bewildered, the women fled from the tomb and said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. (laughs) And he just ends. The end. But that actually is a really great statement of what the life of faith is like. Jesus is raised from the dead and we kind of get flustered and we don't know what to do with it. And a whole lot of our life is sort of like trembling and bewildered. We're trying to adjust ourselves to the reality of resurrection. That's what the letters of the New Testament are. They're like this explication of what happened and an invitation to live our lives on the basis of it. Every one of the Gospels is that. All of the epistles are that. We're trying to acclimate ourselves to, well, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that if anybody is in Christ, what happens? It's a new creation. It's everywhere. The old has gone. The new has come. So what we're doing is adjusting ourselves to it. All of the New Testament is about this. And John is such a brilliant little book laying out just what God has done for us. In Jesus, John is also the author, this, the author of this epistle, is also the author of the gospel that bears his name. And John was a very young man, uh, probably a teenager, maybe late teens, uh, when Jesus appeared on the scene and did his thing. And John was also called the beloved disciple. He was the one who at the Last Supper was actually reclining on the chest of Jesus. There was an intimacy that John had with Jesus that's so profound and it bleeds through in all of his writings. For John, knowing Jesus is about knowing the love of God in person. And so the title of this series is Learning Love because as we learn to adjust ourselves to resurrection life, what we're really learning how to do is to love God and be loved by God and extend God's love to other people. With that, I'm in the book of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. If you're there or you're using your mobile device or you don't really care to do either of those things, just say, I'm ready, preacher. Great. 1 John, hear the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, John says which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This, John says, is the thing that we're proclaiming concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you now the eternal life, which was with the Father but has appeared to us. And we're proclaiming to you now what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we're lying and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, John says, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin. But if anybody does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. And so we open our hearts to you, God. You're the one before whom all hearts are known, all thoughts are known, all desires are laid bare. No secrets can be hidden from you. And that's a good thing for us. 
May you come and you search the deep things of God and the deep things of our own hearts. You're doing that to lead us into the light and the love of the Lord. So we invite you. We need you. Uh, We want you. The beloved in the Song of Songs says, All night long I looked for the one that my heart loves. That's a statement of our whole lives that we've been looking for the one our hearts love. And then she says that when I found him, I wouldn't let him go. And we have found the one that our heart loves in Jesus Christ. And we're not going to let you go, but we're also mindful of the fact that the important thing about us is not that we're clinging to you. The important thing about us is that you're clinging to us. And that no matter how many times we try to rest ourselves free, there is a love that will not let us go. And we can rest our weary hearts in it. And so we pray that we would do that this morning. I'm asking that you would remind us of how good it is to be called children of God. What you've done for us in Jesus and help us live our lives on the basis of the fact of Jesus Christ. Grant it, we pray. We say may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said... I love these verses as I meditated on them this week. I thought, you know, for the beginning of a series kind of in the Easter season, this is so beautiful because in a lot of ways, these verses in John, they really are something of a comprehensive uh, Christian view of the world if we have eyes to see it. And I want to just lay that out for you in three easy steps, just kind of looking at what John is doing here. And so I'll say this to you, just first point for you to grasp, that the work of God in Christ, and that's what John's trying to lay out for us here, The work of God in Christ, number one, is about life. Everybody say life. Three times in the first two verses, John talks about life. He talks about this thing, which was from the beginning that they've heard, that they've seen with their eyes, that they've looked at and their hands have touched. He's talking about Jesus here. This is what we proclaim concerning the word of... It wasn't rhetorical. I'm dying on the vine. It's lonely up here when y'all don't talk to me. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. He says that the life appeared and we've seen it and testified to it. And we're proclaiming to you now the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The work of God in Christ is about life from first to last. This good and beautiful life that God has given us under the sun. My wife Mandy and I, we got four kids, Ethan, Gabe, Bella and Liam, and we have loved our life with them, this life that is a gift that God's given to us. I was thinking recently about uh, and talking with her about, so Bella, when she was real little, I just, I love having a daughter with my whole heart. And when she was very little, five, six, seven years old, we've got with all of the boys, uh, all of the kids, we've always had these little rituals and routines that we've done that are like our way of staying connected to them and everything. And I'm sure most of you who are parents, you've got that as well with your little ones. It's like your little rituals that they're so holy and they're so sacred to you. And with Bella, one of my little sacred rituals was at night I would go into her bedroom and I, we had this bedtime routine. And the bedtime routine consisted in me reading these Disney princess books. So all the great Disney princesses. And they were all about manners. And I just loved them. They just used the Disney princesses to teach manners, you know. And that's a good thing to instill in a young woman. And so I would get real close to Bella. 
laid next to her on the bed, and we would read about Jasmine or Aurora or Snow White or whoever. You know, I think this was just before Anna and Elsa. They definitely had Rapunzel, though. She was in there. And we would read these Disney princess books, and there were lots of times that I just kind of thought, I had this, like, sneaking suspicion that Bella wasn't really listening to me, that she was more just kind of, like, getting lost in the silky baritones of her father's voice, you know, which is fine. But also I wanted her to listen because we're learning manners here. So what I would do just to like put a little test in there is I would substitute the word taco for any noun that I just wanted her to like really. And there were like a lot of nights where I would just, I could, I might get a dozen tacos in a book before finally she would just go, wait, dad. And she would like realize, kind of come to. And then she would say to me in her little Bella voice, she'd go, dad, no more tacos. And I loved that so much. And we would read the whole book all the way to the end. And they would always have like a little white page there that had like nothing on it. And I just always made sure, I don't know why I did this because I'm a weirdo. And I would get to the end and then I would say, and white page. And she would always giggle at that. And now she's, you know, she's going to be 14 in a little bit here. And she's, <laughs> she told me the other night, she goes, Dad, you know what's so weird is that anytime I read a book now, if they have a couple white pages, I hear you. <laughs> white page. So we'd finish all of her little Disney princess books. And, and then I would lay my hands on her. And I would bless her and pray over her. And I would say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I make the sign of the cross on her head. And I kiss her on the forehead. And then I go and I turn out the lights and I I'd close the door. So like, here's the question. Does that have anything to do with God's salvation? And I say to you, it has everything to do with God's salvation. That is what God's salvation looks like when it happens between a father and a daughter. This life that God has given us is holy. From the first to the last, it's holy. It's good. Think about the writer of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, as God unfurls the creation Every stage of the creation epic is punctuated by the creator, not saying like, uh, but what does he say over it? It says, God saw what he had made and he saw that it was, it was good. It was good. Salvation is always about what happens in here and now, in this life that God has given us. And sin warps our world, and it warps our experience of the world, but it doesn't destroy it, and God never gives up on it. Which is why when you read the prophets, for instance, and the prophets begin dreaming about what it will look like when God comes to rescue his people, they never, ever, 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 everybody say never, ever, ever, ever. They never, ever, ever, forevers, they never, ever, ever, ever position salvation as an escape from this world. But what they see is that God moves into this world and he puts the pieces of it back together again so that we can experience it the way that it was meant to be experienced. So when they talk about God's salvation, they don't talk about going to heaven when you die. Nobody talks about that. You know what they talk about? They talk about planting vineyards. And building houses. 
And they talk about taking up tambourines and going out to sing and dance and play with the joyful. And they talk about eating food and drinking wine and welcoming long lost relatives back home. It's always about this one beautiful life that God has given to us, which is why when the second person of the Trinity comes among us, he doesn't come as a ghost or some disembodied spirit. But John says, John chapter 1 and verse 14, that the word became flesh. And as Eugene Peterson says, he moved into the neighborhood. Why did he do that? To restore our sense of the holiness of things and to help us see it. And whenever Jesus moves in salvation, he always moves through the stuff of our materiality. Think about what he says in John 10.10. John 10, 10. The thief, he says, has come to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they would have life and have it to the fullest that it can be experienced. When Jesus saves us, he saves us in this life and for this life and nowhere else. Think about that great moment that happens in the book of John, chapter 9, the gospel of John. There's the man born blind. You remember this story? And the disciples see him and they go, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They wanted to get into a theological debate about what happened here, who messed up to merit the wrath of God. And you'll remember that Jesus pivots them off of that. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And then he has the blind man come to him. And do you remember how he heals him? The text of Scripture says that he gets down and he spits in the dirt And then he makes paste, mud, and he grabs that man and he packs the mud in the man's eyes. And he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man goes and washes and he comes home and his eyes have been opened again. That is as good a statement of how God saves us as you could hope to find that he does it through spit and dirt and mud, that he does it in bread and wine, that he does it in the waters of baptism, that he operates through the conditions of our creatureliness and not around them. Think about marriage as an example of this. There was a couple that was here in the first service. I married them off a few weeks back. And one of the things that I mentioned in that marriage sermon is something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great pastor and theologian of the 20th century, said in a wedding homily that he wrote to some folks who were getting married who he loved deeply. And he said, you know, there's this thing that happens in the marriage ceremony where either the couple or somebody else will take the rings and they will put the wedding rings in the hand of the pastor. And what the pastor will do or the priest will do is they'll say a blessing over those rings, offer them up to the living God. And then they give them back to the couple so that the couple can put the rings on each other's fingers. And he says, what's happening in this is that that is a Christian vision of reality. He says, what's happening is you're taking your human yes to one another and you're offering it up to the living God. And then the living God offers your yes back to you with his yes added unto it, surrounding your marriage with blessing. That is the life that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And Christianity gets this really bad rap, and sometimes I think it's a well-deserved rap, of being just against everything. That we're against fun, 
and we're against games, and we're against music, and we're against dancing, and we're against joy, you know, because we're trying to be holy and serious. But I say with C.S. Lewis that joy is the serious business of heaven. And we get to experience it as heaven invades our space. Your life is holy is what I'm trying to say to you. The marriages that you have, they're holy. Offer them to God. The relationships with your children that you have, it's holy. Offer to God the stuff that you love that brings joy to your heart. The music that you love and the art that you love and the hobbies that you care about. That's not something other than holiness. That's the arena of holiness. It's God's gift to you to experience with Jesus Christ the whole joy of life. Is not exiting it and going somewhere else. The whole joy of life is living it with Jesus. And all of a sudden you start to experience him as the one that he said that he was. I have come that they would have and have it to the full. And so the work of God in Christ, number one, I'd say to you is about life. Number two, I'd say to you this, that the work of God in Christ is about, it's about fellowship. Four times in five verses, John talks about fellowship. He says, we're proclaiming to you this stuff so that you would have fellowship with us. And our fellowship, he says, is with the Father. If we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship four times. In five verses, I think that John is trying to say something to us here. And what's fascinating, by the way, is that when John talks about fellowship here, the four times in the five verses... Two of the times he's talking about fellowship with God. And the other two times he's talking about fellowship with other people. And it seems that in John's mind, you actually can't pull the two things apart. That when we have fellowship with God, we also have fellowship with one another. And as we have fellowship with one another, we also have fellowship with God. That, by the way, is part of a comprehensive Christian view of the cosmos, that God doesn't just create this place and then have individuals kind of just go and enjoy life, but the deep joy of life actually is in fellowship, relationship with God and with one another, which is why John says this in verse 4. He says, we're writing all of these things to make what? Our joy complete. And we're in fellowship with God and with one another. That is when the joy is filled up. I have been so blessed in my life to have really good friends. I'm also so blessed in my life to have some good friends that I really get to share life with. And one of those folks that I get to share life with is uh, Pastor Daniel Grothy of the Friday Night Community. Daniel and I have known each other for about 25 years or so. Uh, we were friends in high school a little bit. And then we went to the same college together and got to know each other. And then during our grad school and early ministry years, we kept up with one another and became not just friends, but like ministry colleagues, supporting one another. And then, blessed be God... We get to work together. And we've been on the same staff together for six years. I cannot believe it. I thank my lucky stars every single day for that. And Daniel and I, though, in all of those years of being friends with one another, we've never really taken any, like, long trips together. And so we are together. We're in this doctoral program at this seminary uh, up in Michigan. And you go on these, like, week-long intensives where you learn a bunch of stuff and do things. And one of those intensives is a really good description of that, by the way. The program directors would love me for that. And one of those intensives was last fall, we took a 10-day trip, trip to the UK to go on like a writer's tour of Great Britain, seeing all these great like UK literary historical sites. It was like so much fun. But you're also a little bit nervous because we never spent that much time together. We're going to be like roommates with each other. And like, this is like, 
Well, it's either we're going to get really close or it's just going to bust right here. So God, help us. And, you know, I'm happy to report that the relationship got closer. And, I, man, the whole week together, I was like, I, that, you're my bro. That's why I like you so much. And so our last night that we had there, we were in London, staying in this hotel. And I woke up in the morning a little bit before him. And I took a walk and stopped, stopped at a coffee shop and did my little devotions and stuff. And when I got back to the room, he was up and about and he'd showered and stuff. And I said, hey, are you using the bathroom? He said, no, I'm done with it. He said, but um, the shower in there. He goes, just be advised. I was like, what does that mean? He's like, just, I'm just saying, be advised. It's a situation. And I said, okay. And so I got in there and I turned on the water and it was like, God is my witness. It was like gale force wind and rain. Coming out of the shower had like nothing I'd ever experienced in my life. I was like holding on to the shower curtain, trying to brace myself, scrubbing my head and just doing that. And I'm listening to Grothy in the other room and he is hooting <laughs> and hollering, laughing so hard. And I'm like just trying to survive this encounter with the shower head. And I, I got out and he cannot breathe He's laughing so hard, and pretty soon I am blue in the face because I am laughing. So I'll ask you again does that have anything to do with God's salvation? It has everything to do with God's salvation. That's what God does. The Spirit of God sneaks into our relationships with one another and He knits us together in a way that you can be halfway around the world (laughs) experiencing a gale force shower thing. But somehow, Rowan Williams, one of the great theologians of our day, says that relationships are where God happens. God happens. It has everything to do with God's salvation. This is what it's about. This is what Luke says in the book of Acts. The Spirit is poured out. Peter preaches to all the onlookers, invites them into the story of God's salvation. And the church is born. And listen to what Luke says. He says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what else? Not rhetorical. Thank you for helping me, church. The apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everybody's filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were what? And what did they have? Everything in common, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And then they did more than that. What they do, they broke bread. They ate meals together in their homes. And they ate together, I love this, with, what a statement, with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And wouldn't you know it, the Lord added to their number, how often? Daily, those who were be. What? The great problem with humanity is Cain and Abel. We look at one another and we don't see friends, brothers, sisters. We see enemies. And I'm saying to you that God in the second person of the Trinity, he takes on a body, he lives and he dies among us. He is raised to life again on the third day and he does all of that for this. To 
put us back together again, to give us to each other so that when we look into each other's eyes, we also know that we're looking into the face of God. Relationships are the deep sacrament. (laughs) They're the place where we encounter the living God. And if you don't know that, you're missing the best stuff of life. Life is found in that. I love, I just heard this story this past week. A couple families here at New Life East have gotten to know each other over the last couple years. Wouldn't you know it, the Spirit is insinuating each family into the other family's hearts. They're learning to love one another. They're growing in their commitment to one another. And one of the families has been in a tough time lately. Last few months have been pretty difficult. And this other family found out that this family who's been in the tough time, that they weren't going to have Easter dinner on Easter Sunday, last Sunday. So do you know what they did? They had their whole meal cooked. They packed the whole thing up. They went over to the other family's house, set the table for them, laid the food down, and said, we love you. This is yours. We'll be back later to pick up all the stuff. We're going to go get some takeout food. Enjoy our meal. And and if that doesn't strike all of the chords in your Christian soul, I don't know what will. That's what Jesus bled and died for. That we'd no longer look at one another as enemies, but as friends. That we'd be open-hearted to one another. I love how Paul says in the book of Romans, he says, now you are the body of Christ. And then he says, and each of you belongs to all the others There are no strangers in the body of Christ. We've all been made part of the fellowship. We've all been made part of the friendship with God. We are all part of one another. And when you come alive to Jesus Christ, you begin to experience that. And so the work of God in Christ, number one, it's about life, this beautiful life that God makes for us. Number two, it's about fellowship with God and with one another. And I'd add the creation into that as well. That as we come into a kind of loving rapport, friendship with all things, we also experience friendship with God. But the work of God in Christ is not just about those things. I alluded to it earlier. But the work of God in Christ is also about, what does it say over there? Forgiveness. Three times life is mentioned. Four times fellowship is mentioned. Nine times in six verses sin is mentioned. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus' Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, if we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins. If we claim we have not sinned, my dear children, I'm writing this to you, you don't sin. But if anybody does sin, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for us, but also for the sins. John, I think he's making a point. Sin, 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 sin. We are so uncomfortable in our day talking about sin. We don't want people to feel embarrassed. We don't want people to feel shamed, you know, and all of that stuff is right. But I want to just say to you this morning that if we lose the language of sin, we are really going to be in trouble. Because sin is the way that we name the dysfunction that exists among us. Sin is the great crisis in the biblical narrative. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 1, God sets up a space of life. life. Genesis chapter 2, he creates this place of fellowship. But then Genesis chapter 3, the first couple steps out of God's life and into death. And if we lose the language, that's what sin is. 
Sin is saying no to the life and walking in death and destruction. And if we lose the language of sin, we won't be able to really know what's going on among us. Now, we're almost out of time in this sermon, but I want to, in the last couple minutes, give you just a little theology of sin here and what Jesus has to do with all of that. Sin, in the first place, I would say I'm going to give you two things. You can stuff this in your little theological backpack and use it later. But sin does two things to us. Number one, sin damages us. Everybody say sin damages. Sin is not just a matter of an all-powerful being up in the sky being a little preferential about things. All right? God's not fussy, okay? How many of you have pet peeves? You got pet peeves? Sin is not God's pet peeves. That's not what it's about, okay? Sin is about, like, I have shown you how to live. (laughs) If you will just honor that, then you will live. Life and blessing will come to you. So sin doesn't, it's not about irritating God. Sin damages us. It does something to us, which is why Paul says in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is not God's annoyance. The wages of sin is death. It actually damages us, but the gift of God is eternal life. So sin damages us, but it also, second thing sin does, is sin disrupts. Everybody say uh, disrupts. So it disrupts our relationships with God and with one another. It actually works damage to us and then it disrupts the world around us. And we try to teach our kids this from a very early age. Like we would say, like if they did something to uh, harm or offend one of, their other, one of their siblings, we would always say to them, here are the things that are required of you, okay? Number one, you got to go to the sibling that you offended and you got to say you're sorry and it's got to be sincere, No, like, I'm sorry. You can't do that. You know, like the sacrifices of God or the broken spirit and the contrite heart. You got to get contrite, you know. Got to be like genuine sorrow. You need that, number one. But then number two, you got to get back in there with them. And whatever was the thing that you made wrong, you have to find a way to make it right. So if you went in there and stomped on their Lego, got to have the broken spirit and the contrite heart. And then you got to help them rebuild the Lego. Because sin damages the Legos, and the relationships, and it disrupts the relationships. You see that? Cornelius Planting, a great theologian, says that sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. (laughs) That we are the ones responsible and we have made a mess of the world. And so we've taught that to our kids. When you offend, when you do something evil or wrong, you got to get back in there and you got to make it right. But here is the great problem that the Bible outlines for us. That no matter how hard we try On our own, we simply cannot undo all of the damage done by sin, nor can we overcome all of the disruptions that have been caused by sin. Because the damage goes too deep in us, and it goes too deep in other people. And all of those things that we have done that we should not have done, or the things that we failed to do that we ought to have done, those things cause ripple effects in God's creation that cannot be overcome by human agency. So here is the good news. John says this. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. He who, say it loud, church. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you know what that word atonement means? Literally, it means at 
atonement. To call Jesus the atonement, to call Jesus the atoning sacrifice, is to say that somehow in him, all of the damage and all of the disruption caused by sin, it's overcome. That all that damage was sunk into his body on Calvary. That all of the disruption came into his body Which is why Isaiah says that it's by his wounds that we have been healed. We don't have it in ourselves to make our relationships right. We don't have it in ourselves to overcome the disruptions of the world. But he does. And when we come to him and we offer to him our broken hearts, our penitent hearts, our sorrowful hearts, what happens is the power of the atonement goes into motion and he starts making right everything that sin made wrong. Can you receive that this morning, church? Can we stand to our feet and begin to offer ourselves to him? Again, the psalmist said it. The psalmist said, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it and you don't actually take any pleasure in burnt offerings, God, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And so this morning we pray, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our innermost thoughts. Would you come? All the places in our lives where we know that we are responsible, we offer it up to you, Jesus. And we say, have mercy on us according to your unfailing love. As a body before you, Lord Jesus, we make this our prayer. Say this prayer with me this morning, church. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Church, I say to you this morning that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just not only to forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you can receive that this morning, would you give God praise? We say thanks be to God. As a response, we're going to come forward as we always do to the table of the Lord to receive communion. I'll invite our communion servers to come forward. Bread and cup, body and blood, broken and poured out for us. Jesus, the atoning sacrifice. As you come this morning, you'll come up the center aisle here. You'll exit this way and that way, my right and my left. Receive a cracker and then you'll dunk it in the juice and you'll take it as you head back to your seat. I say to you, brothers and sisters, that these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.